0: Thank you, and thanks for being here today. Uh, So I'm going to share a little bit of insight from the bridge program at Mercy Corps that I manage that's looking at gender and resilience through a variety of different other programs that Mercy Corps is implementing. And through this program, we've had the chance to work alongside IFPRI around some of our measurement and assessment tools. Sophie gave an introduction about the household decision-making measurement tool that we were piloting together. And I'm going to share a little bit more today about an activity that we piloted to focus on what we actually do once we uncover that decision-making is an issue and a barrier to our our results. So I wanted to give a a brief story about why we're talking about decision-making as a program approach within the context of resilience. And this, I wanted to give an example from Nepal. We were working with some community disaster management committees, and they conduct a variety of activities in the community. Um, including a collective potato planting initiative um, in this particular community that was meant to uh, generate cash income. And so, in the committee, the men who were usually making the decisions said, we can plant 10 kilograms of potatoes each. seems like a great amount. And usually, the men were those who had the decision-making power. But after this approach we piloted, women were getting more involved in the decisions. And they said, and in Nepal, in this region, in fact, women are the ones who are responsible for planting. And they said, we can do 25, easy, more than twice what you're saying. And so they did. And the whole community, these were cash crops in the community. The whole community benefited from this increased income, from this diversified source of income that households could rely upon if a shock or stress threatened their other source of income. So this is one of the reasons why we're addressing this issue in our programs. Just a bit of brief background about this program. It's been two and a half years, and it is uh, it, a, an unusual program in that we're focused on capacity building in particular around Mercy Corps and our capacity to implement programs that apply, as Tom mentioned, this dual lens of resilience and gender to our programs. And so we're working in with six different programs across three countries, Indonesia, Niger, and Nepal, And we take an approach of three phases. So in our first phase, we worked with these programs to conduct gender and resilience assessments. The second phase, we piloted different activities to address gaps identified and then worked to consolidate learning. And so through our action plans that we were developing in in phase two that were building upon gaps identified through these assessments, we were identifying different gendered pathways that were standing in the way of our resilience strategies we were applying. And there were some commonalities across these different pathways. And so these were the areas that we chose to focus on. And they were, in addition to equitable household decision making, access to market linkages and women's meaningful participation in community groups as well. And these are all interactive as well. They will, um, as, as you shift one area, that can have an effect on other areas as well. And so today, we're just going to talk about household decision making and the approach that we took in order to try to address this topic that comes up over and over. But often, it's, it can be challenging to take this understanding of a gap to what we actually do within a program context. So what did we do? The pilot that we conducted was in two programs in Nepal and one in Niger. And we, we called it the household dialogue activity. And this photo, although it's not great quality, is from our pilot in Niger when we were bringing men and women together. So this was a four-day training with couples, with men and women. We brought them together and had facilitated discussions and conversations around a variety of topics, some of them rooted in gender equity and gender behaviors, roles and responsibilities, and then also working on just communication skills and dialogue and facilitating dialogue around household finances and disaster preparedness at the household level. And our approach was really focused on household harmony. We were trying very hard not to shift into this concept of oppression, men oppressing women. We wanted to stay as far away from that as possible and really focus on more of a household harmony approach. And then our facilitators conducted six weeks of follow-up, at least. In some cases, it was uh, several months or longer than that. And then we had a couple of additional add-ons in Niger. Uh, we did a religious leaders training around these same topics to reinforce it. I would actually say this is probably not optional in Niger. This was a really important part of the program, to really reinforce the behavior change at community levels. And then we had learning days where we shared out some of the learning within the broader community and and really as more part of a festival and a celebration around what was learned and to begin to really share out some of these ideas with the broader community. And then in Nepal, we offered. Uh, economic supports, so the small-scale grants to uh, to different communities and families that were participating in this activity, so that they could follow up immediately on some of the joint decisions that they were <coughs> making around women's participation in market activities as well. And I could share different uh, quotes from participants, but I, one of my favorites actually came from our program coordinator in. Nepal. She was the district coordinator and she said, for us, this activity, the household dialogue is a magical touch. When we go to the field and we talk to those who have been part of the household dialogue and they talk about the changes that have been applied in their lives, we think, why not in our own families? We never imagined a simple training could be so powerful. And this spoke quite a bit to us of the program staff themselves were recognizing the shift they could see within the community and within their effectiveness of their own program. So what did we learn? This is a, uh, uh, hopefully you guys can see most of this, but I'll go over it uh, briefly. This comes from research that we conducted in, excuse me, thanks. This comes from research that we conducted. I try to move around a lot when I speak, but that doesn't work with mics. Uh, in, and we have a research brief available that's out on the desk as well uh, around what actually shifted. What are these links between these shifts in sociocultural norms and resilience and to climate and ecological shocks? And so you'll see at the bottom where we're trying to to build towards this strengthened household and community resilience to climate and ecological shocks. And we have a series of resilience capacities identified here that previous research has shown this linkage between social capital, information sharing, even decision making, and strengthened resilience in many different instances. And so our programs take these strategic approaches that are looking at increasing attendance in community groups and activities, that are relying on participation at decision-making levels in order to implement their resilience-building strategies within the programs. But there's often these sociocultural barriers to participation that women in particular face, including time, mobility. And so what our research found is that these activities at the individual, at the household level, such as the household dialogue, which you can see at the top, really shifted these different gender equitable behaviors that were able to kind of unlock participation in these strategic community activities. So things like shifting men's respect for women and overall valuing of their opinions, women's confidence, which was a huge piece that came out of our research, men's trust in women outside the home, and sharing of household chores. And this is just a brief, I know there's a lot of text on this, but this is a, a brief example from the real gender and social inclusion resilience in action brief that Tom mentioned earlier that's available of what is this linkage when we're starting with this pathway of, of women's equitable participation in decision making. How does that actually link to a resilience capacity that can support resilience, for example, in a program that might aim to build financial well-being as some of our programs in Mercy Corps were. And so you look at participation in financial decision making and that in many cases can lead to improved financial management. And there's other factors that go into play as well. You've got uh, women's financial literacy and general skills around finance and knowledge of the household, but that can result in stronger household financial planning that can make that household more resilient in the face of a shock or stress. And critically, if a husband is not present, a wife has the power to make the decision on her own even if he's not there. Respond. So I've got a few lessons to learn. My last couple lessons learned to share in the last couple minutes today. Uh, First of all, is really just the importance of addressing intra-household social norms. Tom mentioned this, and some of our other speakers mentioned it earlier. While we are looking at the systems level within resilience thinking, which is critically important to what we're doing, it's also important that we can consider what's happening at the individual and household level. And as this quote from our research says, sometimes the desired change that we wish to see has to really start first at the shift at individual and household levels. A one key piece is that we really need to consider a longer time frame for social norms change. Our bridge program was quite short, and so we had uh, some pilot activities where we were able to observe change within the short term. And this is one example. This is one of the guys who participated in the activity in Gao in Niger, and you can see him collecting wood, which is traditionally a uh, a job that's left to women. They'll carry it on their backs, but he's getting a much more effective load of wood with his um, donkey. And we are able to observe this change within the short term, but we really need to see what's happening in a much longer term. How can this be built into our programs over a longer term? Also, the importance of building confidence. This came out of our research, and this is really something that we can't ignore. In, In many cases, we found that it was often more difficult to shift behaviors among women than it was among men even. And this is not meant to put the onus entirely on women, but that oftentimes these internalized gender norms and the systemic inequality that we face can be quite internalized and can be very challenging to overcome. And this is a quote from, it's uh, an article in the Atlantic that was looking at the confidence gap, actually globally, looking at um, in the U.S., in Europe, and worldwide, what this uh, that this is a, a huge issue that actually can stand in the way of success in many different areas. But as it ends up here, the good news is that with work, confidence can be acquired, which means that this confidence gap in turn can be closed, and we did see this through our work as well. Another important piece that's come up a couple of times is this importance of integrating activities. We Addressing social norms is critically important, but we also must be, be sure to work this into a broader complex program strategy. And this is one example that's also featured in the real brief around what one of our programs did in in, uh, western Nepal around looking at the dairy value chain for particularly for um, lower caste members. And so there's a concept that the lower caste in Nepal or the Dalit caste, that their milk will be unclean and so many times uh, other community members will not purchase it. And so the community our, our program took kind of a dual approach to addressing this. One is that they set up these demonstration farms with the healthy Dali cows so that people could see that their cows were quite healthy, in fact, and that there were no problems with it, to try to shift these underlying social norms. But in the short term, people need money. These dairy farmers needed to sell their products. And so the team also took an approach of training on making ghee or clarified butter, which was um, a much more accessible product for the community and wasn't seen as quite as unclean as the milk was. And they also set up a collection center where they got milk from lots of different communities and so no one could tell whose milk it was once it was all mixed together. And so in the short term, we had interventions that was actually addressing the short term needs of generating income while also working to address these longer term social norms. And then the final lesson is the fact that we know we need to scale this. We need to consider the issue of scale and how we scale this household dialogue pilot. And we addressed a couple of different uh, a couple of different issues in order to scale around looking at spillover effects, which was noticed quite a bit in Niger, of these households that were quite influential and role models, and, and uh, narrowing down so we're targeting just kind of specific households who were leading change, working among gatekeepers like religious leaders. But I really wanted to highlight that there's no shortcut. In some cases, when we're talking about social norms, this is big change. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy, and we need to be careful that we don't cut this short and lose what the real benefit is of shifting this, um, shifting this activity. And household dialogue, in fact, was not a particularly expensive intervention. It was $17 to $20 a beneficiary when we did the, did the math out. So it's, um, I, I wanted to leave you with, I, I believe it is worth the investment to take on these activities and really, really address these issues. And then finally, we've got some resources to share for you, but we do have toolkits available in our research in order to actually implement some of these activities, household dialogue and the measurement toolkit on household decision making and the other pathways that we worked with with IFPRI. So thank you so much. Thank you.